Welcome to Unveiling Apocalypse, a podcast about the book of Revelation. Well, hello and welcome everyone. Um, today we are speaking with Associate Professor Keith Dyer from Whitley College. Um, Keith is a little later to the book of Revelation, I understand, uh, not your, your primary uh, or initial research area, but has, has certainly um, done a fair bit of writing in it recently. Yes, that's right, Ewan. Um, I initially wrote on my doctoral thesis on Mark 13, so-called apocalyptic discourse by some, although that's not the name I'd give it. So I was into a, apocalyptic themes even then, but yes, Revelation was a secondary interest in a way. But a, a natural one coming out of, uh, <laughs> coming out of that, perhaps. Yes. yes. <laughs> so... Keith, tell us a little bit about, um, well, tell us a bit about yourself uh, initially at first, uh, as much or as little as you'd like. Uh, okay, moving right on then. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I've been teaching now, Whitley, I'm sort of on the verge of retiring or downsizing drastically. So I've been teaching there for over 25 years. I studied there initially with Athel Gill on the Gospel of Mark and then taught for three years in Switzerland after I finished my doctorate before coming back to, to Whitley. Yeah, I live in Box Hill and my family there, grown up sons, one still at home. Yeah, what else would you like to know? <laughs> we, we should probably say for, um, for the sake of full integrity that you were also my doctoral supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. So, yes, that's sort of... Um, naming your uh, connections and so forth. But yes, that's, it was a yes. great pleasure for you and to be part of your doctoral project on Revelation. Uh, thank you, Keith. So let, let's talk a little bit then about your interest in um, Revelation. So unlike most of the other guests on this podcast, you haven't done a doctoral dissertation on Revelation, but you have done a bit of publication on the text recently. What led you there? What led you to the book of Revelation in particular? In, well, I can remember growing up in churches where we had these Bible prophecy speakers who would come along and um, put a chart along, you know, along the back of the wall with the red line of the, the bloodline of Jesus or the, um, the tribe of Judah and so on. And through the dispensations and predicting the end times and revelation was always in that. And it always fascinated me as did the passion of those. They were all men, as it turns out um, for the Bible. Um, and then when I study in Mark and seeing the connections with these themes of end times, plural um, in those days, plural, or in that day, singular as in Mark 13, uh, is it a process? Is it an event? All of these sort of questions have been lurking for many years in my studies. And uh, I taught Revelation with Athel Gill as his tutor. Uh, he compiled a wonderful handbook to that unit. Uh, he always said you can't teach Revelation without pictures. Uh, and so we had many pictures there. And you've written on, on, on Albrecht Dürer's work and Revelation yourself. Ewan, so you would appreciate um, that connection. That That's where yeah, I've inherited it from. Because So you've inherited <laughs> it from Athol, and I've inherited uh, yeah. it from you. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's a very visual book. And I know you've spoken with um, 
Robin Whittaker too, and, and visual exegesis, of course, is part of her um, focus in, in doing revelation. So um, I've had those interests with the visual. And in recent times, I've, I've had the privilege of going on, let's see now, it's three of the Comcar archaeological expeditions or uh, visits that they've organised, the Colloquium on Material Culture and Religion to Turkey in, in most of the seven cities uh, and, and to Macedonia and to Rome. So the visual side of, of Revelation has been very much part of my recent, um, well, over the past 10 years, study leaves and so on. And so let, let me pick up on, on that a little, if you don't mind, Keith. Interested yeah. in, in the visual aspects of things, how do you think a person's perception of the text changes when they're maybe not embedded, but when they visit these locations? Yeah, that, it's a good question. And, and the visiting is not necessary. I mean, it was very helpful for me, but, but it's just seeing the pictures, I think, you know, seeing the coins and you can do that on, online these days. But it, for me, it drives home the significance of context. In my youth, the people I heard reading Revelation always read it, or nearly always, predominantly in this context, our context today. And so they were seeking to make connections between the text and our context. Now, that's very important to me. I believe the Bible is the word of God. It's relevant for today. But the way they were doing it, I think, short-circuited or, or, or it showed a, a lack of awareness of when Revelation was initially written and how the earliest readers would have heard it. They would dismiss that often. They say, oh, that's a preterist interpretation as if Revelation is just a history book. It's really God's word for us today. And, and of course, always we were the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church that were about to be spewed out and, you know, um, because the end times were coming. Well, it's a question of, of context and, and not just the initial context, which, which the visual stuff helps so much for our interpretation and our context, but all the context in between. You know, Revelation has a message right through ever since it was written. It, it's prophetic literature, which is true, and therefore it will always be true, as the other prophetic writings in, in the biblical canon are. They may not be fulfilled in exactly the same way each time, but because they are God's truth, then they stand as God's truth. And, and we can learn from it uh, in any age, any time. What you're saying then is that gaining a, well, I mean, I, I suppose the word that, that should be used is material, a sense of the material context is in and of itself important. Yes. Yes, I, mm. I think so. Otherwise, we, we hear the, the, the bizarre language in Revelation of um, giant grasshoppers and, and scorpions and with hair and so on. And, and we look for analogies today without considering what it might have meant for John and his hearers. You know, surely we should ask that question first. We do when we read Paul's letters. You know, we read Paul's letters and he talks about women having their hair up or their head covered. And you know, I know there are some churches who say, therefore, women today must wear hats, but they're a tiny minority now. Most people say, what did it mean in Paul's context? 
what might it mean for us today? What were they trying to convey ethically in that context that was important? And, and what can we learn from that today? We do it with Paul. We do it with the Gospels. But for some reason, people tend not to with Revelation. Um, often they'll just try and make a straight application. This is what it's about. It's really about Seahawk helicopters. They're the scorpions or the whatever. Or it's about you know, Donald Trump or Putin or whoever we want to bring in as, um, as the beast or whatever. And I suppose today that's the uh, 5G, 5G towers or something as well. Oh, 5G. <laughs> okay. Yes. And wait till it's 6G, then we'll really be in trouble. 6, 6G. Well, yeah. <laughs> so let, let me ask this question, which may be a, a bit of a silly one, but when we talk about context with regards to the rest of the New Testament, like you say, you know, there seems to be an element where when we come to Revelation, we kind of throw that out. Why do you think that is? I think because, partly because the language in Revelation seems so bizarre, we don't think it can apply to anything in the past. It must just apply to the future. That John is somehow struggling to describe things that are kind of happened 2000 years later, you know, as if, as if revelation meant nothing until our time now, you know, and, and every generation has done that. There have been minority groups that have interpreted revelation as if it's written just for them. And we are the elect and everyone else is, you know, we are the 144,000. Everyone else is doomed to the lake of fire. Um, that is a bizarre reading when you think of it, because it suggests that basically John wrote for a tiny minority 2000 years later. And, and, and how did the book get into the canon if it didn't mean anything for, for people in the first century and the second and the third, you know, that's when the canon was determined by, by Christian usage in the communities, what was profitable for teaching. And they found revelation was, so they did include it. It was one of the last books in, we should add, but um, it was included, and so it must have been meaningful to them then as God's word. And so I think we, we ought to ask, how would they have heard what John is saying, what he's describing? Before we ask, how might we hear it today? And, and we don't have to be scholars. To, you know, it helps to do a bit of study and reading, but it's not as if I've got all the truth or, you know, if someone's got a PhD in Revelation, they must have all the answers. Um, certainly that will help, but it, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it requires the community, I think, of interpreters to check, to cross-check and to say, look, what do you think about this possibility? What do you think about this? Do you know that this is what happened in the first century? And this is what the Romans were up to or... This is what this imagery means in the Babylonian context and what it might it mean in a Roman context or a Jewish context. There's all sorts of cultural uh, contexts there that we need to consider and, and no one's got all the answers. But um, I think if we listen to what people are saying and evaluate it, then together we can, we can come at a better meaning than if we just disregard the early context altogether. Mm. And it's interesting you talk about the, the community of scholarship because what one thing I have found as someone who, also like you, you know, grew up with the, um, with the big long charts and, and all of that yeah. and coming into, you know, academia, if you like, there is a substantial difference in that, 
you know, a lot of the more out there <laughs> fringe chart type interpretations are usually solo acts, if you like. Whereas yes. all of us who, who work within the scholarly community are building off each other. Yes, and I, I mean, I grew up with a strong suspicion of academic Bible study in, in the communities I, were, I was part of. I mean, we loved our evangelical scholars to have a, a PhD from Cambridge or Oxford. That, you know, that really meant something. But we, we were suspicious of all the other scholarship. <laughs> and, and um, yeah, there was this sense that... You, well, I think it's a healthy suspicion, but we should have it to all interpretations. And the, the solution is not that I am right or, you know, rather it's together if we have an open and honest discussion, not just in the community of scholars, but in the, in the church community, you know, the community of believers. Uh, it takes a, a longer time. There's an educative process for people to learn how to read and, you know, read the whole of Revelation together. You, you can't just sort of have a, a one-hour Bible study on Revelation and, you know, get too far. It's complicated. But I've found people in churches are, are remarkably willing to, to, to sign up for the long journey and to really work with it and get really mm -hmm. excited by it. Um, so it becomes about the community sort of journeying through it together then. Yeah, I think, and, and cross-checking with each other and realising that often there's no one answer. There are possibilities, you know, for, for 666, for example, you know, there are some good possibilities for what that might have meant in the first century. And therefore, how might we understand that, that cipher today? What are the, what are, what's the range of possibilities? What, what should we be looking out for? in terms of empire and economic control of empire, because that text talks about economic control and, and economics and politics. It's explicit. That's quite humbling and could be quite exposing, I suppose, in that sense, really, isn't it? In, in terms of coming all together and working out the text together. Yes. Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, there, I, I get senses of where I think, what I think John's on about, and I get really excited by it. But then a student will ask a question, you know, what about this text? And I think, oh, dear, yes, what about that? <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, it's not a, it is very much a matter of working together on it. Mm, well, that's, that's helpful. Um, let, let's move, shift gears a little. And, and you, you've mentioned the, um, the first century readers or hearers, if you like. Um, yeah. which is really what we should be saying <laughs> a yeah. few times. Um, tell us a little bit about that. You know, what, what, what do you think they're hearing? Yes, and you, you're right, they are hearing. Uh, even though many of them may have been able to read, certainly Jewish people, perhaps many of them would have an you know, ability to read, the males in, through the sort of bar mitzvah type process of educating them in the scriptures. And Revelation is full of references to the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, it's not just Greco-Roman visual stuff we should keep in mind. It's also the Hebrew, the story of the Hebrew, the Israelite people, and all the visual stuff that, that the Old Testament quotations evoke. Um, and, and I think it is that, it is that mix of, of uh, Jewish background because Revelation is one of the most Jewish books in the New Testament, along with say, Matthew and James, in terms of its 
the Greek it uses and the references to the Old Testament, which in Revelation are never explicit as they are in Matthew. Matthew draws specific attention, sometimes even quotes which prophet, you know, is being fulfilled. But Revelation never gives a, a footnote or a reference, but just uses images all the way through uh, lines and um, traditional um, symbols all the way through tabernacle stuff, the measurements and, and, and the Exodus plagues, they're all there. Um, but it's, it's, it's intermingled with the Greco-Roman imagery, as you've uh, written about in your work, you and the, the assumption of Greco-Roman theatre, uh, which is everywhere. There are Greco-Roman theatres everywhere, not just in Asia Minor, there are many there, but right throughout um, Galilee and Palestine too. You know, Judaism is, is Hellenistic Judaism. Uh, you can't draw a neat line between the Greco-Roman part of the Mediterranean world and the Jewish part or the Eastern part. It, it, the, the Greeks conquered all of that and the Romans took over from the Greeks. So it, it's, a, it's a great hybrid cultural soup. And, and um, so when we hear Revelation read, it, it's a multicultural document it evokes multicultural images which really makes it quite complicated for us because we're not sure which is being which is the most important what's what's the most important visual evocation that, that's coming to mind as we, as we hear revelation so we just have to try and identify the possibilities and and often there's a mix i think there are some dominant ones and there, you know, the hebrew bible is one particularly the, the, the prophets, but also the Exodus narrative is very important. And then the other, I think, as you've nailed it in your thesis, is, is the Greco-Roman theatre, uh, which, which represents more than just the theatre. It's the worldview. It's the cosmology. You know, it's the three-tiered cosmos with the high throne of God above the highest one. But, of course, that's... In, in the end of Revelation, that's tipped upside down when God comes to pitch a tent to dwell with God's people. So um, the whole of the cosmos becomes infused by the divine presence. Well, it is all the way through, but it becomes a even more pressing reality in the end of in the New Jerusalem. So, yeah, you've got these dominant frameworks, and then you have particular images that relate to particular Caesars at times, or their mistresses or their wives. You know, the, the whore of Babylon seems to have elements of Messalina, the, the promiscuous wife of Claudius, you know, that, that fits with some parts of the whore of Babylon. So it's, it's a savage political satire. When you read of the whore of Babylon, it, it also is, is um, I think, refers to the sort of imagery we see so graphically in Aphrodisias, just up above the Lycus Valley there, where you have the Sebasteion, the procession way to a Caesar temple. You've got all these images of the Roman Caesar defeating the nations of the world. There are 50 of them, and, and some of them still remain. And the bases, many of them re remain. So all the, all the people, the ethne of the world are named including the Jews, the ethnic Jews. It's like saying the Gentile Jews. You know, if we translate it as Gentile, it's, it's an interesting oxymoron. 
for us to wrestle with there. The ethne always sort of means the other, you know, not us. We're the dominant culture, the ethne are the others. And, and so you have these Caesar pictures of the, the Caesar in heroic nudity as, as the divine conqueror, brutally, in some cases, raising a sword to kill. And you have a semi-clad woman representing each of the nations, the female form. So Britannia, Armenia, two of the ones that remain, they're savage pictures, uh, patriarchal, you know, and they're, they're not just in Aphrodisias, that's modelled on, on scenes from Rome as well, uh, where Rome asserts its brutal hegemony over the nations of the world. It's portrayed as a man brutally assaulting a woman. And, and we have picture after picture of these. So when we read of the violence against the whore of Babylon in chapter 18, which is horrific, and you have, you have feminist scholars like Tina Pippin who, who say, you know, revelation is, is a misogynist um, dream, a misogynist dream of, of male supremacy. You know, it's, it's an awful document. Well, you know, you can, it's right for her to name that as a feminist scholar, but in context, John is actually turning the brutality of Rome back against itself, saying, this is how you think you have treated all the nations of the world. And John turns that back and says, well, this, this is what will happen to you. Now, I, I would still much rather he didn't do that, you know. It, it's still difficult for me. But in that context, I can understand why the ethnic groups who have been savagely brutalized by Rome, literally the women raped and killed, uh, would, would want justice against their Roman oppressors. And, and that's what we see in Roman 18. And that visually evokes all of those images of the Romans doing that to the ethnic nations of the world. It is problematic though, isn't it really? Um, it, it's, I mean, there's obviously the, the violence and the, the male hegemony side of things. But then as, as Stephen Moore points out, and, and you know, I know you and I have both kind of <laughs> interacted a little with this, um, there is that, what he calls the, the fantasy of reversal as well, which yes. is dangerous uh, as he, well, I mean, I, I know neither of us fully agree with this necessarily, but as he points out, you know, uh, a few hundred years after Revelation is written, that fantasy yeah. sort of plays itself out, really. Yes. Read from a position of power, then those texts of reversal actually become texts of reinscribing brutal Roman hegemony, but now as the, as the Holy Roman Empire. Now, we have to say it was modified, you know. Constantine did get rid of crucifixion, for example. There, there were some advances, but in the end... Right throughout history, the Christian empires have been brutal to indigenous people. They have reinscribed those very images of, of male Christian conquerors putting indigenous people to the sword if they did not convert. You know, we think of the Spanish conquest of South America, but we don't have to go that far. We can think of that here in Australia and the way indigenous people here were treated by so-called Christian colonialists, some of whom are still present in our statues, you know, 
some yeah. until quite recently one of our electoral districts in Victoria was named after one of these so-called upright Christian men who was involved in massacring Indigenous people. That has been changed to an Aboriginal name, I think, which is great. But now people are becoming aware. Some people don't like that. They say, oh, that's trying to rewrite history. Well, yes, it is. It's, it's a better version of history. It's history with an awareness of the people who were the losers in history, rather than history just written by the powerful and the mighty. And so we reinscribe that attitude, that abuse of power in our, in our politics and in our theology. You know, the church and the state ride that triumphant um, abuse of power. It's, it's high time we question that and we, we rewrote our history more accurately from the perspective of those who are the victims as well. Take that into account. And Revelation does that. It's doing it from the perspective of the, of the oppressed and the brutalized. But when we then come to it as, as the powerful and read it from our perspective, it can become a very dangerous document. And I think we, 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 one of the dangers in today in 2020 in seeing and talking about this is that we do see this narrative being pushed out to justify things, you know, um, People will say things like, oh, well, you know, we're, we're the oppressed minority um, when they clearly are not. But, yes. you know, using this sort of rhetoric to, to justify these things, which is, yeah. again, you know, very, very problematic, isn't it, really? Yeah, this idea that the church in Australia can claim to be a persecuted church or, you know, this, this is... We don't know what that persecution is, if that's what we think. Um, just because a few government interpretation or laws might go against what we think is, is our theology, we really, we really don't understand what we're saying. And I think it's perhaps the threat, having been dominant for so long, the church, we, we don't like it when we're no longer the, the primary player who can set the rules and the ethical standards. But, I mean, the early church could never do that. You know, they, they weren't the dominant player to well after Constantine. Um, so for three, more than 300 years, they were illegal and they could be persecuted at any time. They were many times, but not, not systematically all the time. Not necessarily, for example, when Revelation was being written under Domitian, I, I think, um, we don't have good evidence that there's systematic persecution then, but it's always um, a possibility at the local, at the regional level, because Christians are illegal. And if they get reported to the authorities, they can be in big trouble. Yeah. And, and we'll come back to the demission thing in a second, because I, I, I want to pick that up. But I, I am, it has occurred to me, I guess, as we were talking about this, that, Maybe, maybe Stephen Moore is a bit more right than, <laughs> than we've kind of conceded recently in that maybe we're Christians, if you like, um, for the last few hundred years, are the empire now that, that Revelation writes against, which is a horrifying thought. Yep. yep. No, I think that is very true for much of Christian history. We have, we have been the ones, uh, you know, the successes, the successes to Rome. We have structured our politics on Rome. You know, as America, the, the Senate, as straight from Rome, and as we often think of, of Greece as the, as the mother of democracy, but 
Rome also influenced our democratic, our two-house Republican model, you know, with the Senate. It's a bit different mm. in the English tradition, but, but you know, we, we follow the American system too, and it's, it's a Roman system, the Senate, and many of the understandings of how the president or the, the should, should function, it, it's very close to the Senate. <laughs> you know, it's mm. really interesting. And if we trace the influence of Roman and Greek politics throughout history, we can see how it, much of the critique of revelation is still relevant today. How do those in authority use power? How do they derive power? And how do they abuse power? And, and that's economic and political, religious power, yeah. So let's come back to, to the Domitian thing, but, but keep that, that thought in mind as well, because obviously closely linked to the dating of Revelation to an extent is also the question of what John is writing against exactly. Yeah. So you, you dated a little later then. I, 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 yeah, I think it's, it's a fairly common view now that Revelation somewhere in the nineties, um, 90 to, um, 96, that, that range of dates under Domitian. Uh, it's also was a, an early view as well in the church. That's when it was written. Um, so it has some, it's not just modern scholarship that, that argues that. Uh, I know that some argue for a dating pre-fall of the Jerusalem temple, because they argue that in Revelation 11, it's measuring the temple. Uh, the question is, is it the temple or the tabernacle, you know, and, and, and the temple in heaven and, and, and the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven, you know, um, so you can, I think, counter those arguments quite well from, from Revelation. But um, I, I would put it under Domitian. Rome is never mentioned. The Caesars are never mentioned in Revelation. Um, there is no explicit reference to Rome. Uh, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. Babylon is the word that's used. But, of course, Babylon was the last empire that destroyed the temple uh, before Rome. So there is a, not just in Revelation, but in other first century Jewish literature, there's also the use of Babylon. We see that in Peter, the letters of Peter, the use of Babylon to refer to Rome as a cipher. It's, it's, you have to be careful when you critique Roman power in the first, second, third century. You, you have to choose... Um, symbols or use other language because the Romans are very thorough in their um, enforcement of their of their power <laughs> not only with with foreigners but also with their own you know the, the Roman poets and so on who got exiled because they they were too critical of an emperor yeah but at the same time Keith it revelation isn't exactly subtle well it, you know it, it doesn't it doesn't mention Rome it doesn't mention the emperor, but when you've got someone being called Lord of Lords and, and riding horses and triumphantly entering scenes and uh, a harlot on, on seven hills, it's, is John really trying to hide what he's doing? No, I don't think he's, he, he's trying to hide. He says in the very first word, he's trying to uncover, to reveal the truth, but he just has to be careful how he does it. Um, so... For those, for his hearers, they know what he's talking about. But also I think it's important that he does it in a way by using the word Babylon, 
by referring also indirectly to, to Greek gods, Apollyon and, you know, it's all empire. It's not just Rome, Greek, Babylon, Babylonian empire. It's all empire since, including, you know, Spanish, English, American, you, you name them. Um, whether they claim to be Christian or not, there is a critique of imperial power, absolute imperial power misused by humans to, to um, build up the elite, the extremes of wealth, and the centre of power. And that's been true of all empires. You know, if we just look at the capital cities, um, if you sort of trace them through, Babylon, it wasn't Athens for the Greek empire, it was Macedonia, um, but you have Rome and you've got uh, the Spanish empire, you've got London in the English empire. The way that wealth gets dragged to the centre of the empire, there are, there's unequal, unfair trade, pulling in the wealth to those who control the empire and control the means of transport. Uh, they, have, they have divine power over land and sea, you know, that, um, which we see in the, in the graphic imagery of Roman coins and breastplates. Uh, they're forever trumpeting how they have brought the Pax Romana, peace of Rome to land and sea. And every empire since has used that same imagery. Yeah, you, you would have seen it in Berlin and in, in um, Vienna. Uh, we see it around the Senate in America too. We have it here in Melbourne, some of that uh, imperial imagery, the, the eagle, the lion. Yeah? These are all part of that set of symbols. So, so Revelation then is about, really then, you're, you're suggesting it's about the way that humans treat and abuse other humans. Yes, and, and not just other humans, but the whole animal and, and plant, you know, the whole cosmos, the ecology, the ecosystem is distorted by empire. It's exploited by empire. We have it happening right now in Australia, yeah, whereby our current powers are trying to turn back the clean energy funds so that they help to fund coal and gas in order to kickstart the economy, we're told, rather than being invested in renewable energies, which is what they were set up for. Uh, we have a, right at this moment a debate that's about to hit the parliament and the Senate, whereby this money can be used to actually fund uh, research to make coal clean and, and to make fracking work, you know. That's the sort of thing that happens when you have centralization of power and economics, vested interests, big companies, political leaders, and um, not listening to the whole community, not considering the long-term consequences. They want the short-term fix so they can get re-elected, the politicians and the businesses, so they can make short-term profits because they need to have increasing profits year by year. The, you know, that's the way our economic system works. You don't worry about the 10-year, the 20-year forecast. You go for the short-term profits and the short-term power, it seems. And it seems that Revelation does speak about this, but, but also more specifically about the environment. Although having said that, a lot of our more, shall we say, conservative, if you like, or traditional or whatever word you'd like to use, interpreters 
would, would, would turn around and perhaps say, well, actually, Revelation isn't worried about the environment because, or, or the ecology of the world because it, it all gets burned up anyway. So, so how do we kind of navigate that? Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's a critical question, isn't it? How do you interpret the final chapters of Revelation? And you know, some will quote, for the heaven and uh, for the old earth and sea passed away or fled from God's presence, and there's a new heaven and a new earth, um, and, and argue that the new Jerusalem comes to some other new place, not to this earth. If that was so, different language would be used. It's, it's the Greek word kainos, kainē, kainos, that's used there, which uh, is not the brand new, it is the renewed word. Now, you, you know, it overlaps with the other word, neos. You know, you can't make an absolute distinction, but, but if they wanted to stress that it's brand new, they would use neos and its associated terms. In fact, we can see that it's not, it's kind of always in the New Testament. That's the word that's used, a renewed earth, a renewed heaven. When you think of it, if this earth is to be destroyed, why do you need to destroy the heavens also? Because it's never just the earth, it's always heaven and earth, you know? Um, and, and the way I learned it was, you know, heaven's eternal, it's always there, but the earth gets destroyed and we have a new earth. But actually, that's not what it says. It always says a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because it's the renewal of the whole cosmos. You know, in, in that three-tiered cosmos, that ancient worldview, the heavens are not far away past the, the most distant galaxy. They are what you can see looking out the window, the blue sky and the sun and the moon and the stars. This is all the, the heavens, and God sits atop the heavens. It sounds like to us a primitive worldview, but it's actually very accurate from the perspective of earth that's what it looks like to us and that's how they wrote they weren't stupid they they were very keen observers of the environment and the cosmos you know they could predict the movement of the planets and so on the wandering stars you know, they and and they saw that this would be renewed god's good creation which the devil does not control and will never control will be renewed the devil through the beast Satan, the dragon in Revelation, leads astray many of the kings of the earth, many people, but the devil, Satan, the dragon never controls the cosmos or the earth. The earth actually fights with God's people against the devil. You know, in Revelation 12, the earth comes to the aid of the woman in the wilderness. Yeah? So earth and God's people are working together against the power of evil is what revelation is saying and the outcome is not in question at all mm. from the beginning of revelation to the end it's clear god is is the one who has ultimate power the battle in heaven has already been won revelation 12 the devil's thrown down the, the thing is we need to work with god to make that a reality on earth we are co-regents with god you know we are participants with god in bringing about that um, victory on earth over evil. Well, one of the challenges though, Keith, I think is that we do see a substantial portion of the earth struck down, if you like, almost yes. as, a, as a casualty uh, in this war, um, yes. you know, through the events it's of, it's you a, know. A quarter, isn't it, in the, under yeah. the seals, a quarter and then a third. And then a third. Under the 
Under the thunders, it would have been a half, but the thunders are, are silenced and the bowls come out. Yeah, it, you're right. So how do we, how do we, do we then kind of, taking what you've said, do we then kind of look at that and go, well, that's just a, a prediction of the inevitable or, or is Co there collateral collateral damage you, you well know. that's right you know yeah. or is there is there some lesson to be learned there do you think well again i think it depends on how you you read the four horsemen and everything that follows some people say oh this is god punishing an evil earth and ultimately people won't repent so god's going to blast it all and start again you know, um, that to me is an extraordinary way to read Revelation, that, that, that God should destroy the creation and give up, rescue a tiny minority, you know, rapture them out of this mess and begin again on some other planet or I don't know what, what they really think. God's creation is good. It has always been good. Genesis tells us that. What humans have done to it, as in the days of Noah, was not good. What we have done to each other and to the animal and plant kingdom and uh, is not good. And so God punished, you can say, or started again in a sense with the flood in the days of Noah. And we, in some of the passages in the New Testament, that days of Noah, Matthew 24, 25, is used again to talk about another, if you like, renewal operation a chance to, to give the cosmos another chance to start again on another footing. And I think that's what Revelation is, is doing too. It's challenging us to be part of the cleanup and the renewal of God's good creation so that we have a mm. new heaven and a new earth and God is able to dwell with us on earth. You might say, well, why doesn't God just directly come in and do that? Well, I always use the analogy of the watchmaker analogy is not a good one for God as the distant <laughs> watchmaker, um, but there's some truth in it too. You know, whenever you create something, even if you write something, I don't even had this um, experience yet. You and someone who's read your article and comes and asks you a question, which shows they haven't understood what you're writing at all. They've got a completely mm. different idea. Uh, I've had it sometimes where people ask me a question. I think I didn't ever say that. What, what I, and they've actually read it in a way very different to what I what I intended. Now that could be my faulty prose, but but you know I think it's it's true. As an artist, perhaps it might be a better example. When you create something, you no longer have control over it. It's free for people to interpret whichever way they want to. You can't you can't stop them from misreading you you know you can try and educate them and so on but but if they want to read it that way that's it you know you've created you've put it out there and and i i sense sometimes you know we hear songwriters or you know bob dylan getting cranky with people when they um well i understand now why why he would because you know people people can be quite obtuse in the way they interpret things i think that's you know with god's creation it's up to us to do what we do with it. You know, how are we going to respond to God's creation? And now it's true that God could step in and, and you know, wind it up, but then it's no longer God's creation. It, it's, you know, it, it's been, uh, we are no longer free people. We are no longer, mm. you know, yeah, something, God. So having created the world, it has to, the logic 
of God's creation has to be allowed to work its way out. And that's what I think we have with the four horsemen and all that follows. It, it's never that God sent the four horsemen to destroy a third of the forests and a third of the rivers, you know? That's not what it says. It always says it was permitted. It was allowed. Yeah? It's a passive construction there. And the angels, the messengers of God, announce what's happening. So it's like these are the inevitable consequences of human abuse of power, human intransigence, refusal to repent. This is what will happen to the earth, to us. You know, these are the inevitable consequences. God is trying to warn us, you know. Um, God wants us to change our ways. We have that word repent, repent. And all the, the letters of the seven churches, repent. If you do not repent, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and that word repent basically means change your ways, change your yeah. direction radically. It's not a question of feeling sorry and asking for forgiveness. That's not what repent means. It means change your direction. It's not working. Yeah? That's, that's the urgent call to us today as we look around and we see. We've had you know, nearly a third of our forests in the southeast of Australia burnt up in the fires. Huge loss of, of life and uh, animal life and, and plant life. We need to change our ways. And, and you know, that's not a simple fix. It, it doesn't mean we just buy in more water bombers or lease them from California. And, you know, that big sort of technological fix is not going to work. We have to change our basic ways of living. We have to recover some of the ancient wisdom of the indigenous people of this land who managed to look after the forest for 60,000 years before we came here, yeah? managed to, to burn off in local areas. Yeah? They didn't try the big burn off. They'd often do it at night. And, and when, when the temperatures are lower, they pick their time. You burn off at different times for different gum trees. You know? Some gum trees need fire to, to, for their seeds to germinate. Some don't. You know? So you, you've got to know the bush. You've got to understand what you're doing. You know, all that wisdom, we, we come in and we think we can, we can sort of mass produce, we can clear vast areas of land, we can do this, we can do that. And, and well, you know, we reap the consequences. Well, we, we are running, <laughs> no, that's right. We, we, are, we are running low on time. So to, to yeah. kind of end, what, what, how do you think humans, readers or hearers of, of the text should respond today in, in our 21st century then? I mean, you've talked a little bit about this, but, you know, anything yeah. you want to particularly sort of hone in on? I, I do think that we have totally um, underestimated the political and the economic consequences and, and significance of the book of Revelation. Mm. Economics and politics. Yes, it's about religion and spirituality and worship. It's very important. But, but worship in Revelation is not, liturgy just on a Sunday at 11 o'clock, you know, it's what are we it's doing today? Yeah. How do we ascribe worth to God in our everyday activities, in our commerce, you know, in how do we, how do we, how do we live as if God, the God of love and justice means something to us in our everyday lives. And, and revelation is all about that. And it has uh, phenomenal, economic and political consequences. And, and I think 
we have failed to take account of that and, and to be challenged by that. And we've failed to change our ways. We've sort of gone along with the majority culture, think, oh, well, we're a Christian nation. We must be doing it right. We've been exploiting you know, other nations. We've been trampling on them just as much as the Romans did in our, in our mm. offshoring all our production because we can pay them less than we pay, pay people here and so on. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's, that's a good place to end and a challenging one, I think, for all of us in, in that, you know, what if, in that reversal, perhaps, that, you know, what if, what if we're the empire <laughs> and, and, yeah. and Revelation challenges us? But also, as, yeah. as you say, you know, this question of politics and economics, which so many people want to avoid or, or take out of the, um, the scriptures in particular, but fail to recognize that they're deeply embedded in um, in everything, yes. in, in all of our New Testament, but especially in the book yep. of Revelation. Yes, yes, I think so. Uh, and, and still, we do not repent. We do not change our ways, is the, mm. is the text. Yeah. yeah, well, that's a good place to end. Well, thank you so much, Keith, for, for being with us today. Really appreciate Thanks, you being you here. And thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.